Morning. Um, oh, a bit loud. So my uh, my wife Karen um, and I are really quite different, especially in our taste in uh, movies and TV shows. So Karen uh, loves the happy ending. Uh, so she loves the romantic comedies and the feel-good movies where everything is tied up neatly and everything is resolved. I don't really like those endings very much because they're kind of predictable. I like endings that make you think. Is anyone with me on this one? Like endings that make you think, even if they end unhappily, like everyone dies. I don't care, as long as it makes you think. Um, even if they're unresolved and leave you hanging. I, I love those endings. Now, th the most famous movie with an ending like that that leaves you hanging is, of course, Inception. Yes, you guessed it. All right, if you haven't seen the movie, and some of the younger ones may not have seen it, it's all about uh, what's, uh, what's dream and what's reality, because in this world, the technology exists that you can actually go into dreams and create dreams and put people in dreams uh, deliberately and specific dreams. Um, and, and the whole movie is really complex and confusing because there's not just dreams, there's also dreams within dreams. So you go many layers down within dreams. So you can wake up but still be in another dream, and then wake up and still be in another dream yet. And so people in this world can get completely lost in dream worlds because they'll never wake up and they think it's real, but it's not real. So how can you tell? Okay, how can you tell if you're in a dream or not? Well, um, there's something called a totem, right? A totem is something that has weight, like an object, and you can feel it, you can touch it, and it behaves in a certain way in the real world differently to how it behaves in a dream. So let me give you an example. The main character, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, um, has a totem, and his is a spinning top. Now, if it keeps spinning and never stops spinning, then he knows it's a dream, right? Because totems fall down in real life. But if it topples, then he knows he's in reality. That's how he tells um, if he's in the real world or in a dream. Now, here's the thing. At Inception, after this incredible movie, which I love, at the very end of the movie, the last scene, you remember, this is the scene, Leo, the character, his character, he spins the totem, and we don't see whether it keeps spinning or topples over. All we see is that it wobbles slightly and then boom, cut to credits. End of the movie. So everyone's debating afterwards, was it real or was it a dream? Complete hit cliffhanger. Well, Mark, the book of Mark, its ending is a little bit like this, isn't it? It ends so suddenly. Look at verse 8 again. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What kind of ending is that? Now, this is the original ending of Mark. We're pretty confident. The eight verses. Now, if you look at your Bibles, they'll probably have longer parts, but you'll get a footnote saying something to the effect that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts finish in verse 8. See, it's easy to explain that people after Mark wrote the short ending had problems with the short ending, so some editors put in the longer endings. But they came much later. They're not original to Mark. Mark almost certainly finished with the short cliffhanger verse 8 ending. Which makes you ask, why? I mean, did he run out of papyrus? Did he get distracted by his kids? Did he suddenly die of a heart attack? I mean, why would you end it that way? Well, let me suggest to you, without telling you everything, I think Mark's ending is deliberate. As deliberate as Inception's ending. And he does it so that his biography of Jesus, which we've been looking at over the last few months, so that it's not just locked away in history as something that just happened 2,000 years ago. It's interesting to read about. 
But it's going to be something that challenges us today, even 2,000 years on here in Sydney, Australia. And that's why he ended the way he did. But if you want to know more, you're going to have to concentrate. So let's pray and let's get into it. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we read a part of the Bible that seems to be puzzling at first, that you would help us understand it, but not just understand it. Help us to be challenged by your Holy Spirit, challenged and changed so that the very purposes for which Mark and you inspired him to write might be challenging us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, follow with me on the outlines you got. Three points. Let me give you the story so far. Um, last week, for those who are here, you'll realize and you'll remember, as pa- Pastor Marshall t- preached to us, that the climax of Mark is the chapter before. Mark chapter 15. All right, Jesus, we remember, is confirmed to be the king, the chosen king, the Messiah, but in the most unexpected way possible. He's rejected. He's betrayed. He's abandoned. He's condemned. He's crucified like a dirty, common criminal. And yet all of that was completely in the plan of God, and it was completely willingly done by Jesus because he went to the cross to bear the sins of the world. He gladly and courageously took the punishment you and I deserved for rejecting God and abandoning God and disobeying God and messing up our world. And so the climax of Mark shows us that this king is abandoned so that we would never be abandoned. That this king is rejected so we would never have to fear rejection by God. That he is punished so that we could be forgiven. He dies so that we need never fear death. He goes to hell on the cross so that we can go to heaven. That's Mark 15. At the moment of greatest humiliation and suffering and shame and pain is actually the greatest victory, triumph of God and his king. So even though Jesus' accusers in chapter 14 and 15, they mock him by making fun of him by dressing him up as king. And remember, they give him a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. Little did they know that that is exactly the kind of king Jesus is. They were mocking, but they were actually unknowingly speaking the truth, that he would be the kind of king that is humble and suffering. The servant king, whose kingdom is not about power and conquest, but about sacrifice and love. Now, That's all, by the way, background, but if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I just want to highlight that and ask you if you know this love personally that Jesus has for you. Do you know this forgiveness? Do you know a relationship with God that means you'll never fear abandonment or rejection by Him? Because if you don't, um, then put your trust in Jesus because it's for you. Okay, that's 15, but then in Mark 16, the victory of Jesus' death is confirmed because three days later as we read the tomb is empty the first day of the week it's almost like a new creation moment all right and just as jesus predicted three times in mark he would die but he would come back to life three days later and if jesus is alive then everything he says is true isn't it everything and all his promises you can bank your life on And his victory over sin and suffering and brokenness and death is confirmed, is sealed. He really is king because he is now alive again. And yet, here at the moment of Jesus' greatest triumph here in Mark 16, what do we see here? 
we see a picture of human failure. That's what we see. The women disciples, the followers of Jesus here who are beginning of Mark 16, these three women, they fail big time when face to face with the empty tomb, which is a sign of Jesus' victory. Now, you might be thinking, I'm being a little bit too harsh. Well, have a look at verse 6. That young man, who's really, I think, pretty clearly an angel, look at his words compared with what happens in verse 8. So look at verse 6 again. He says to them, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Okay, that's what the angel tells them. Look in verse 8, what did they do instead? Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, that's sort of like confused. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Do you see there? They did the exact opposite. You get that, right? They did the exact opposite. The angel says, don't be alarmed. Don't freak out. What does it say there? They were bewildered and afraid. They freaked out. Go and tell others, the angel said. They said nothing to anyone. Do you see? Pretty clear, right? At the moment of greatest triumph, they fail. Now, I'm not just picking on these women disciples. Right? So those of you... Men are thinking, yeah, we would know. Well, you know what? In Mark's gospel, at least the women were still around. The male disciples were even worse. At Jesus' crucifixion, the women stuck around. Even though they were at a distance, they at least stuck around. All of Jesus' male disciples had abandoned him. Even Peter, who denied him three times. And at least they bothered to turn up to the tomb to try and uh, freshen up his dead body. Or they thought his dead body. Right? Everyone fails Jesus. But here in Mark 16, what they did was a failure. And you see that even more as I go to uh, point number two on your outlines. Point number two, the time has come. Um, a couple of hundred years ago, 200 years ago, almost exactly, in 1815, uh, there was a famous battle uh, between Napoleon and the Duke of Wellington. You might have known of the Battle of Waterloo. Right? This battle was fought and it was Napoleon's last stand and Napoleon gets it was a pretty close battle over a number of days, but he finally gets defeated, and that's really the end for Napoleon in terms of his conquest. Um, and so on the day, Wellington, the Duke of Wellington, defeats Napoleon. Now, they need to send that message back to England, all right? Because the Duke of Wellington is English, and it was the English army against Napoleon. And so the message on the day was, Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Now, how they used to send messages before the days of, you know, email and phones. and Well, they would light fires and sort of like an ancient Morse code. They would send, um, and so one fire station to another, you would see the fire, it would send a code, and then you'd pass it on all the way from the mainland, from Europe, all the way to England. Now, on the day that the message was being sent, guess what? There was a terrible fog that descended. And so the message got interrupted. And so England only saw the first two words of that message. What words did they see? They saw the message, Wellington defeated. And it was only hours and hours later when the fog lifted that they saw the whole message, Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, God really 
won the victory already. Sin and death are defeated. Jesus took the punishment. But it's a little bit like this message. Um, when Jesus died, though God won, the message is only half sent. Because to the world and to his own disciples, it looked like defeat, even though it was a victory. They didn't get the whole message. It looked like defeat, even though it was victory. But Easter Sunday, when the tomb is empty, the message is completely sent. And so the message isn't Jesus defeated. The full message at the resurrection of Jesus is Jesus defeated sin and death. You kind of get what I mean? Because Jesus coming back to life, the resurrection is a signal that God really did win at the cross, that his king really is king. This kingdom really has come. Forgiveness and eternal life really is available if you trust and follow him. Now let me just remind you how important it is that we believe in a historical and literal resurrection. You know, if you're new to the Christianity thing or just checking things out, please don't think we're talking metaphorically. Jesus, we believe, the Bible puts as a historical account, really did come back to life three days later. Not, in, not only spiritually, not as a ghost, but really bodily. And this is central to the Christian faith. It's a historical literal thing we believe that Jesus came back to life. Now, if that's something that you still have problems with, because yes, true, people don't come back to life, generally three days later, um, then that is a point of investigation for you. And we'd love to help you do that. Come the new year, come along to something called Fresh, and that's one of the big things we'll be dealing with. But anyway, we believe in a historical, literal resurrection, because Jesus coming back to life, just as he said, is meant to be a signal to his followers, male or female, that fear and silence and running away, though once maybe appropriate and understandable, is now the wrong thing to do. So look at point two. This is now the time not for fear, but for figuring out. That's the first thing. You see, fear is actually one of those themes in the book of Mark. In the rest of the Bible, you often hear fear as a good thing because there is a good type of fear you know when uh, the bible talks about fearing god it's not saying being scared terrified of god in in a negative way but it's sort of awe and wonder and respect at god's bigness and glory and holiness that's good fear but in mark's biography of jesus fear is almost always negative fear not a good fear it's fear that's tied up with not understanding fear when you don't get it it's how people react to Jesus when he reveals something of who he is, but they just can't comprehend it. That's how Mark uses fear. So, for example, you don't look it up, but Mark chapter 4, Jesus famously calms the storm, but the disciples are afraid because they don't understand who he is. Mark chapter 5, after Jesus casts out an army of demons, the people fear and ask him to leave because they don't understand who he is. In Mark chapter 9, when Peter, James, and John, his closest three, go up on a mountain and Jesus is transformed in glory, they were afraid because they didn't know what to do or say. All right? Fear is what you do in Mark when you don't understand. And right up to Mark chapter 16, fear or not really understanding may have even been understandable or appropriate. Because, you know, it's hard to see victory when you see your king crucified, defeated, humiliated. It's hard to see triumph when the only crown he wears is a crown of thorns. It's hard to see when you only get half the message, like the Waterloo example. 
And so up to Mark 16, up to this point, not seeing, not understanding, fearing in that sort of sense, it's sort of understandable. But you see what the point is now. That was then. This is now. Because the tomb is now empty. Because Jesus is alive. And the full message has now been delivered. So the time to fear and not understanding is over. They should have figured it out. That's the first thing. Secondly, it's not the time for silence, but speaking. So the angel, remember, says to the women in verse 6, Go and speak. Tell everyone Jesus is alive. He's saying now is not the time to shut up. Now is the time to speak up. And so like fear, Mark also uses the idea of not speaking as a bit of a running theme. There was a time when it was appropriate not to speak. And just to show you, it's actually one of those things in Mark, chapter 3, chapter 7, chapter 8, and then later I'll show you another verse in chapter 9. Jesus actually deliberately tells people not to tell. All right, because his full identity hadn't been revealed yet. And what Jesus did was prone to them misunderstanding and so could actually distract him and them from his actual mission, which is to go and be crucified. And so he tells them to be silent, to not speak. But that came with an expiry period, you see. Mark chapter 9 shows us. As they were coming down from the mountains after Jesus' transfiguration, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen. So there it is, don't tell. But, you see the expiry date? Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Up to that point, it was okay not to tell. But now, the final piece of the puzzle has been revealed. Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead, so there's no more confusion. It's all figured out. So no more fear and no more silence. Go and speak. This is the time to do that. Tell people, proclaim, start spreading the news, says that famous song. Thirdly, It's not the time for fleeing, but following. There's an interesting movement that we actually saw the last couple of weeks as Mark reaches that climax, as we said, climax in chapter 15 in Jesus' death. It all starts in Mark 14, in fact. The movement is this. Everyone is moving away from Jesus. Literally, everyone's running away, abandoning Jesus. Right up up to the cross, we saw last week, Pastor Marshall, even God the Father abandons Jesus. It's what Jesus had to do. Right? So even though those who hate him and betrayed him, like Judas, begin abandoning him, we see in Mark 14 and 15, his closest friends and followers also abandon him. Even Peter, the chief disciple, couldn't follow him. Even the women only watched from a distance. Now, that's actually part of the movement that Mark draws because he's making a point, isn't he? The point is, as Jesus goes to the cross, that he had to be alone. See, it wasn't just a historical accident that he died and suffered alone. Mark makes the point that he must suffer and die alone. No one could go with him. Everyone had to abandon him. And the reason is, of course, because Jesus has to do his cross work alone. Only he could bear the sins of the world. That's Mark's point, yeah? No one else can do it. No one else can do it with him. See, the Bible says that a person is saved and forgiven and brought into relationship with God through Jesus alone. It's not Jesus plus your good works. Not Jesus plus a little bit of your contribution and your 
religion. No, no, no. Only Jesus saves. And that's the point Mark's making. Only he can go to the cross and he has to do it alone. And so in some sense, again, fleeing, running away, abandoning is necessary in the story of Mark. But only up to a certain point. See, like fearing and keeping quiet, there is an expiry date. Now that Jesus is king, he's finished his solo work on the cross. Now that he's alive again, that time is also over. It's now time not to flee, but to follow. It's time to go with him now, to be disciples again. Um, Verse 7, the angel tells the women that Jesus is going ahead of them to Galilee. That geography mentioned, Galilee, is important because Galilee was the place where it all began. Mark chapter 1, it was the place where it all began when Jesus first calls people to follow him. So the angel's really saying, now is the time for a fresh start. Time to go back to where it all began. If you're a follower of Jesus, a disciple, now is not the time to run away and hide, but to once again follow Jesus because he is alive, because he is now king forever. You got that? The time has come not to flee, but to follow. So let me summarize. You see why the women's reaction at the end of Mark 16 is such a wrong thing to do. It's a great failure at a time when there should have been victory and triumph because it was, they should have done the opposite of everything they did. Instead of fearing, they should have figured it out. Instead of silence, they should have spoken out. Instead of fleeing, they should have been following. But they do the opposite. And then the story ends. Which brings us back to the question I raised at the beginning. Why a sudden end like this? It's so unsatisfying. None of the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Luke, John, end like this. In Mark, we don't even meet Jesus again. Why? Well, my final point, here's the reason. You ready for it? Here's the reason. Like a good movie that ends without all the loose ends tied up. Just remember what you did after you watched Inception. Or what you did after you watched Infinity War. You were talking about it, weren't you? Endlessly. Right? Because when you end like that, the question is turned on you, the audience. You finish the story. You finish the story. And that makes sense because, do you remember how Mark began? You probably don't remember, but chapter 1, verse 1. All right, easy flip if you want to flip to it, but I'll read it out. He begins with these words, the beginning of the gospel, gospel just means good news, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I wonder how you understand that verse. What do you think the beginning of the gospel means? It could mean, it's like, this is the chapter heading a little bit. Like, so maybe Mark means, well, here I am. I'm beginning now. And, and for the whole of maybe chapter 1, this is just the beginning. But chapter 2 is, I'll follow on from the beginning. So maybe the beginning is sort of like the preface, right? The first chapter or something. Or maybe, and this is what I think, Mark means that his entire book is the beginning. Do you get what I mean? The, the whole book is the the beginning, the good news of Jesus, these events that he's recorded right up to the end of Mark is just the beginning. It's just act one. Because you and I have to continue and finish the story. Mark's ending, I think, is an anti-ending. So that we now, faced with Jesus being alive, 
knowing that God's Son is now the King, we would ask ourselves, so what are we going to do? What are you going to do? How are you going to finish the story? Are you going to be like the women disciples here? Run away, not speak, not understand, not follow. Or are you going to do what they failed to do? On an island off the coast of India live the sentinel people, the sentinelese, a tribe of indigenous people who somehow have managed with the aid of the Indian government to completely seal themselves off from the modern world for hundreds of years. Earlier this month, John Allen Chow, a 26-year-old American missionary, tried to make contact with them so he could tell them about Jesus. So he arranged for local fishermen to take him close to the island where he hoped to give them some gifts of scissors, safety pins, fishing lines, soccer ball. He, after landing on the island on that first visit, uh, he's confronted by the natives. He yells out, my name is John, I love you, and Jesus loves you. When he tries to hand over the gifts, though, a boy shoots an arrow at the Bible he was holding. He escapes without injury, debated whether he should return. Then a couple of weeks ago, on November 16, he told the fisherman to take him again. And he told the fisherman not to come back for him well, to, not to wait for him, but he would stay overnight. So come back the next day. On November the 17th, when they passed by the island, they saw the islanders dragging his body on the beach with a rope. He was murdered. Now, you probably have heard about this story. If you haven't yet, there it is. But over the last two weeks since we found out about it, there's been massive debates, right, raging on the news, in social media especially, Christians and non-Christians debating about whether what John Chow did was right or wrong. And you might have your own opinions. I'm not going to give you an answer. All I'm going to say is it is complex, isn't it? It's complex. But as I read a lot of the criticism and comments, there were a lot of people who were saying there should be no reason why anyone in this day and age should risk their lives to try and convert others. No reason, absolutely none why this should happen. That's a bygone era. That's colonialism. That's arrogance. It's offensive. Like, they want to be left alone? Leave them alone. Some even went as far to say this guy was an idiot. He deserved what he got. Well, however you feel about John Allen Chow's wisdom, I hope you're in no doubt about his reasons. He actually wrote about his reasons to his family. This is the last letter he wrote before he died. Part of it he says, You guys, he's talking about his, to his family, you guys might think I'm crazy in all of this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God worshipping in their own language. Now, did he know the risks he was taking? Yes, he knew he could die. He did prepare. He got vaccinated, in case you're wondering, so that he wouldn't spread diseases unnecessarily. Did he want to die? The answer is no. Because he wrote in his journal, he says, I don't want to die. Would it be wiser to leave and let someone else continue? No, I don't think so. I still could make it back to the U.S. somehow. 
but it seems almost like certain death to stay here. But God, I don't want to die. But if I don't go, who will take my place? Oh God, I miss my parents. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise in our missionary endeavors, or perhaps even wiser than John Chow. But I, what I get at is this. Do you understand what it means that Jesus is alive? Do you understand what it means that Jesus is alive? Because if Jesus is alive, then John Chow is right. People need to hear about Jesus and the good news he offers. If Jesus isn't alive, then yeah, he's dumb. He wastes his time. But if Jesus is alive, then his followers should risk our lives, even face death in order to bring the good news to others. If Jesus is alive, then those who are completely unreached, like the Sentinelese, need someone to bring them the message. I mean, criticize his wisdom, criticize his methods, but please be challenged by his heart. John Chow understood that because Jesus is alive, now is not the time for fearing or silence, or fleeing, but for understanding and speaking and following, even at the risk of death. I wonder if you know what is the biggest obstacle to people around us coming to know Jesus who don't already. What, is the, what do you think is the biggest obstacle to people around us coming to know Jesus? The biggest, number one. Let me suggest to you, it's not their brokenness, not their stubbornness, not their tough questions, intellectual objections. No, they're all obstacles. But they are small compared with, I think, the biggest obstacle. What is the biggest obstacle? Let me suggest to you, the biggest obstacle is idolatry. Idol worshipping is the biggest obstacle. That makes sense, doesn't it? Idol worshipping. But here's the thing, I don't mean their idols. I mean our idols. Our idols are the biggest obstacle to people coming to know Jesus. You see, God can and does overcome all that stands in the way of people accepting the good news. And He does that every time someone becomes a Christian. It's supernatural. It's by His Holy Spirit. But they can't believe unless they hear. And they can't hear unless we go and tell them and invite them to church. And when we don't, it's because of our idols, not theirs. See, what stops us from doing that? It, it's, it's my idol of comfort and security, fear of losing friends and their approval. We're afraid to lose respect, give up time and money and careers and comforts. And so we don't speak, invite. They're our idols. They're our idols. They're more important to us than God and the message about Jesus. But you see here, and I hope you see this today, if Jesus is risen, then everything must change. The time for fear and silence and fleeing is over. Jesus is alive. Do you believe this? Jesus is alive. Never to die again. He is king over all the world, and it belongs to him he has conquered sin. 
He's conquered death. He offers forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who trusts in Him and will follow Him. And He is coming back to judge. So, how are you going to finish Mark's story? How are you going to finish Mark's story? This Christmas season, the new year, as we head into January, especially February when we have what's called Mission Month. Um, for those who are high schoolers, basic, summer youth camp. There, look, let me just say, the next three months is going to be an intensification of outreach activities with this church, with your church, SWEC. And it's very simple. You just have to invite. Not your responsibility whether they take up the invitation. Just invite. But to do that, for some of us even to tell people we're Christians, there's going to be idols standing in the way. Our idols, not theirs. Our idols. So are you going to lay down these idols so that maybe even this week you might continue Mark's story? You might courageously speak and follow our risen King and Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we lack the courage